live in one of the most religiously observant countries in the world. Many working class communities and communities of color are rooted in religious traditions. Yet for over 40 years, the religious right has focused much of its energy on seizing control of religious narratives and institutions. This is Heart of a Heartless World, a podcast produced by the Religious Socialism Working Group of the Democratic Socialists of America, the largest socialist organization in the United States. Our goal is to amplify the voices of people of faith organizing for social, racial, environmental, and economic justice. You can follow Religious Socialism on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and visit our website at religioussocialism.org. Good evening, everyone. It is so wonderful to have you here. It's an honor to have Reverend Wilkes with us. It is an honor to have the first professor that I ever had at Union Theological Seminary in this space. And my name is Micah, as Maxine said. I'm one of the ministers here at Judson. And just in case you are in this space for the first time, or in case you are listening, you don't know what Judson is, we are a church that has never known how to be a church unless we have social justice warriors and artists entering our space and sharing their prophetic voices and sending us back out into the world to do the work that we are called to do. So thank you for being part of those prophetic voices tonight. I can't wait to hear what we are about to talk about. And I just want to give a land acknowledgement before I turn it over to everyone else. So if you join me in honoring the first peoples on this land. Judson stands on the unceded land of the Muncie Lenape people. Our community acknowledges the Muncie Lenape community. We lift up their elders, both past and present, as well as future generations, and we make this acknowledgement as only part of our work to dismantle the ongoing legacies of Christian supremacy, settler colonialism, and white supremacy. Thank you, and thank you all for being here. Okay, thank you. Okay, um, well, we are, we are here tonight to discuss this book, American Democratic Socialism. And um, for those of you who are new to DSA, this will help you understand the, um, the origins of DSA, I think, and also, many of the anomalies that we find in our country around, around socialism. So I'd like to um, first welcome Andrew Wilkes, who is the co-pastor of the Double Love Experience Church in Brooklyn. Uh, he was the podcast um, host of our series in 2020 uh, and interviewed, um, you can find those um, online in our podcast series, but uh, in our webinar series, actually. Um, uh, they were wonderful, wonderful interviews, and we look forward to, uh, to tonight. And I would have to say, Andrew, as I said, Andrew uh, has, Reverend Wilkes has been with DSA before Donald Trump, before Bernie Sanders. <laughs> so, um, and, and in DSA terms, that, uh, that makes him an old timer, even though he's not old. <laughs> so we're uh, very happy to have him here. And then Gary Dorian um, was, in DSA before, um, well, what can we say? Before Ronald Reagan, before, um, right? Gary uh, started out as the, uh, the chair of the Albany local of DSA and um, is an Episcopal priest uh, and has written, is this book number 21? 
perhaps <laughs> book number 21 um, on various themes of social justice, uh, racial justice, and always there is a thread of democratic socialism um, that runs throughout it. And we are, uh, Gary has always been very generous with his time. Uh, he has spoken at what used to be the Socialist Scholars Conference, then it became the Left Forum, and um, he was our very first podcast interviewee years ago when we didn't have really good equipment. Um, so we are very, very happy to welcome him here. And um, we're going to have about 40 minutes, I guess, of Q&A uh, between Reverend Wilkes and Reverend Dorian. And uh, then we'll open it up for discussion um, and questions. We'll have, uh, we will have a mic if you're comfortable with a mic. And if not, I'll have cards. You could write a question out and, uh, and ask it. And with that, I will disappear from the scene. <laughs> so, um, the restrooms are downstairs for those of you who are physically here. Um, and I think that's it. Um, let's get started. Okay, thank you. All right. Um, well, welcome uh, everyone to tonight's conversation. Um, incredibly excited to talk about uh, democratic socialism um, in the U.S. And um, before we get into uh, a Q&A, um, uh, which I'm super excited to do, um, uh, Professor Doran has um, graciously agreed to share a few uh, orienting uh, remarks, um, and then we'll move into the Q&A that Maxine mentioned. Uh, and can I just give a, can we just give our hand a big shout out to Maxine Phillips for uh, her steadfast, visionary uh, leadership of DSA. Uh, for those of you who, who might not have gotten uh, to all 596 pages, but you got to like the first page. She's uh, one of the uh, co-dedicatees. I might have made that word up, uh, uh, but in the book. So I'm uh, incredibly appreciative of uh, what she uh, has brought to DSA. And with that, uh, I'll turn it to you to give some more. Thanks, Andrew. Uh, well, good evening, friends. Uh, it's a great delight for me uh, to be here, to be back at Judson, to be reunited with Micah. Um, to, I've admired Andrew's work for many years. Um, and uh, I've looked forward to, to uh, this evening. Um, this is a book titled American Democratic Socialism, um, and it is a comprehensive history, political history and intellectual history, uh, of, of U.S. American democratic socialism. I've seen it described in a couple of places in the past week as a history of religious socialism, and that is not what it is. Uh, it would just be a different kind of book um, had it been that, uh, with just sort of different kinds of rules uh, and the like. What it is, is uh, a sustained look at the entire history from 1829 to the present uh, of the intellectual and political history of, of the U.S. American Democratic Socialist Movement from the perspective of a Christian theologian and social ethicist. So that's always sort of in play and acknowledged. Um, and because I am the person just described, uh, I do have a way of sort of looking at it that is sort of, that is looking for uh, what I know is there, that, that social gospel undergirding of so much of the Socialist Party and so much of what was called progressivism back in the 19th century that just has never gotten its due in the literature. And so one of my arguments in this book is that um, is that Christian socialism in particular, uh, the so social gospel versions of, of, social, of, 
of Christianity, both in predominantly white churches and in the black church tradition of the social gospel, have just never gotten their due uh, in any of the literature uh, on U.S. American democratic socialism. And one of the things that you lose when that happens, you also tend to lose all the women who came into socialism through uh, that social gospel movement and also African Americans, the same thing. Uh, if you're not paying any attention to religious people or you've got reasons to exclude them, then they don't uh, come through either. And then you also lose all the relationships between all these things um, that were actually very important um, in the time. So all of that is in this book. And I say on the very first page um, that to some readers, this is going to feel like two books in one uh, because there's always this line of argument about secular democratic socialism. That's the usual subject of of uh, work on this of this sort, and then we have this, uh, you know, zigzagging thing about Christian socialism that is always there. It's not just one generation; it's always there, uh, including today. Um, but um, but that sort of describes the, the book. And just one other sort of prefatory thing, I think I'd like to just say about it, and is that um, it is dedicated to three people, um, and uh, the first is Maxine Phillips. Um, <clears throat> None of us are here without Maxine. Uh, she has been utterly indispensable uh, to the religion and socialism group within DSA and utterly indispensable, our most valuable player in DSA for low these many years. Um, I think she referenced me for with DSA, but you know, I go, I'm almost a founder of DSOC. Um, and I first met Maxine in what I think were the later years, like maybe late 70s, of what was DSOC. And then of course we founded DSA. Um, in 1982. So uh, there was no question if I was finally going to write a book about just the whole history of U.S. American democratic socialism, who I was going to, who I was going to dedicate it to. That was just a given. Uh, but then, you know, then you think about it some more and you think, well, there are a couple other people I need to throw in there too. So the second person, uh, Norm Faramelli, is the other person to whom this book is dedicated. Uh, Norm was the leader of the uh, Boston Industrial Mission when I was a graduate student, and he's an Episcopal priest and a, a longtime teacher at Boston University, just, just the epitome uh, of a good social ethicist uh, and democratic socialist. Um, and, 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 and for my whole life, he's, when I just think of labor and socialism, or you know, that, that labor-socialism nexus, I just immediately always just think of Norm, because he's just sort of the epitome to me of, of someone who gave himself to that work, which is enormous integrity. Um, and then the last person is Dan Franco, and uh, Dan is a, uh, was a manual worker, uh, organic intellectual, uh, self-taught in socialism in a lot of ways, a uh, longtime member of DSA. Um, I, every now and then I'll see, I would see him out on the speaking trail, usually when I'm doing some kind of a theological talk uh, somewhere. He lives now in Minneapolis. Um, and to me, yeah, it was just sort of the model of someone of that sort, someone who didn't, didn't come into all this from, from graduate school or, uh, you know, the academy or the like. Um, but uh, from the work itself and uh, really a model. So these are three um, religious socialists that I carry in my head and heart all the time. Um, and so they're the three people that, to whom this, this book is dedicated. Okay. Wonderful. Um, thank you so much for, for grounding us in um, those to whom the book is dedicated. In many ways, um, dedication and being in the work of moving towards a cooperative commonwealth for the long haul is what undergirds uh, the research, undergirds the organizing, and so forth. 
Uh, so I want to, to start here. Um, you've written about um, economic democracy and democratic socialism uh, with that kind of um, underpinning of the social gospel virtually all of your career, uh, beginning with, um, in a particular way, perhaps that second book, um, The Democratic Socialist Vision in 1986. And so th this book appears to be the first one to deal at length with US American democratic socialism. So I'm, I'm curious if you could speak a bit to this question, why this book and why now? Yes, oh, thank you, Andrew. Um, well, firstly, I probably should explain, um, there are two tracks uh, in my work. Um, there's one whole side of it that's very theological and philosophical and philosophy of religion. Uh, lots of books about Kant and Hegel and post-Kantian idealism and Whitehead and liberal theology and liberation theology and so on. So a, a, a lot uh, sort of of that sort. Uh, and my first book, of course, was about Kant and Hegel. Uh, and then the second one, as you say, was this book on Democratic Socialist Vision. Um, and that, uh, yes, got me started on another, the other side of my work, which is social, ethical, and political. Sometimes it has nothing to do with religion, especially if a, if a publisher is just insistent, keep religion out of this book. Uh, you know, I, will, I, I am obedient, and I will uh, do that on occasion. Um, but more often than not, the, we're, even the work on the social, ethical, political side of it um, does have, has something to do with my own um, theological commitments and, uh, and, and religious sensibility. Um, but they are very, too much, very much uh, two different um, tracks. Um, and um, last year, uh, I came out with a book called In a Post-Hegelian Spirit, which was, um, it's the gist. It's the, it's the kind of culmination of all these books I've written in theology and philosophy over the years, and my religious philosophy is in there. It's just for, sort of, uh, I've had struggled with serious illness in recent years, and I don't know how much time I've got left, and you know, I've got books in my head that have just, they better come out now, uh, if at all, so I'm kind of in a hurry, and um, so there's a kind of summing up or, um, you know, go, go for the big thing. Um, that I am feeling at this point. So that came out on that side of my work. The analogy isn't perfect because this American Democratic Socialism book isn't quite what, what that one is. Its subject matter is just so, so very defined and I am, I am committed to it. And, now, and then, so then I have to carry it off because it's, it's no easy thing to interpret the whole history of your country from 1829 to the present from a democratic socialist perspective to get in there all the things that have to be said about just what's going on in the USA and then meanwhile all of that from a democratic socialist perspective and try to fill in some gaps and do things that have just never been done um, in a book of this sort. So the subject matter does in fact confine me um, in some ways. Um, but there is something of still that sort of culminating, there's a sense of, um, okay, what was it all about, the meaning of it all. Um, that is, you know, that is lurking, that is, that is there, um, driving this book. It, it meant an enormous amount um, to me. Um, and it's possible that if I had not done previous books, I mean, I did a whole a, a massive trilogy on American theological liberalism at one point, and I've now done an equally massive trilogy on the, on the U.S. American black social gospel. If I hadn't had the experience of saying, okay, I can, I can really get my arms around an entire subject and try to do it justice, I might never have, have decided I was ready uh, for this book. Um, but I had the prior experience 
of having an obsession, the black social gospel, and wanting other people to write it, because I just think, look at me, I'm just not the person who should do that. Uh, but uh, I had a beloved friend, James Cohn, who just kept saying to me, Gary, for God's sake, it's your obsession. Just do it. Uh, and finally I did. Instead of this argument I was sprinkling in various books, I just took it on and did the whole thing. Um, so now having been through that experience a couple of times, it didn't feel that impossible uh, to do democratic socialism because this has been my subject all along. Anyway, I mean, what you said is exactly right. Um, there are these tracks. Um, and yet it's, and the academy definitely thinks that I am two different people. Uh, and yet I have never experienced it that way because I'm not in any of this. I am nowhere near the church or the academy or an academic career. I'm a latecomer to the academy. But I wouldn't be in any of this stuff if not for the Christian socialist tradition. Um, and, you know, that's what made sense of all of it to me and um, grounded me. And, and it's there holding together all these other variously sort of disparate um, subjects that are always kind of in my wheelhouse. Um, so um, so that, is, that is the answer, except for one other thing, I guess, besides this sort of culmination and feeling like, oh, I'm getting near the end here. Um, there's, there is also this, and I, I don't want to go too long on this because it's probably going to come up in further questions, but, but oh, be, go, go, go being my generation, <laughs> I have spent most of my career feeling pretty lonely, um, writing books where you're just trying to change a conversation or just trying to say, no, Tina isn't true. There are alternatives. Uh, there are alternatives our alternatives to what we're dealing with and what is holding us down. Um, and and, and I've, I've had it sort of on my back for years to try to, to, try to hang in there, inspire hope, uh, write books that are informing people about something they you know, didn't learn elsewhere, um, telling a different kind of story than what's normal, um, just holding out for for possibilities, for, uh, for social justice politics that is, that is rare, uh, that just is few and far between, especially if you live in parts of the country where you just don't even know anybody who's like you. Um, and that's most of my career was spent writing these books in that context, and I am aware that of course it informed my voice, how I, how I presented, how I laid out arguments, uh, I'm out speaking all the time, speaking in churches and other religious communities and conferences. Well, being in that context, that made a difference in how I even talked about these things. Um, and to now be in a context that is so dramatically different than what most of my career was, uh, was in and was about, I just, I very much look forward to, to writing this book in a context that isn't what we, were, what we were dealing with all through the 90s and early years of the century. So that was finally, that's part of the then and now as well. Wonderful, thank you so much for, for sharing um, not only those, those two important tracks of, of your uh, academic vocation and, and career, um, but also what it means to have this, this book come out now. Uh, I wanna dive into one of the, the tensions that um, I think I see in, in, in the book, uh, in terms of the, uh, what's actually happening in the history of, of US democratic socialism. Um, you demonstrate that the Socialist Party and uh, the American Federation of, of Labor uh, in its early phases uh, often put uh, economic justice first 
uh, with gender politics and racial justice as distant priorities when they were priorities um, at all. And so weaving uh, some of the theme of one of your previous works into this, I'm wondering if you could say a bit about what it would look like for socialism to, to break white supremacy and to break with its legacies of, of patriarchy. Oh, thank you, Andrea. It's a, that's a very rich question. I'm even going to have to break it up, I think. Um, maybe break I'll, it up as it feels best to you. Right. I think, firstly, I'll go to a little, little, the first part, just to speak to that, the last part, and then come back and run all, through the whole thing. Um, because, of course, I think much of my response is, in fact, in this book, too, not just in those earlier ones, right? Um, I think that for socialists to be in a country that is the product of settler colonialism and slavery uh, and, and structural racism and extermination of the native population. It, any socialist movement in a context like that one has got to make its high pro highest priority uh, just offering a witness against and being involved in struggles against racism, period. And, and with all that, that is in there, uh, I just don't think it can be anything that's lower priority than that or something that we sort of get to by way of uh, something else that gets privileged, which, which did in fact happen in a great deal of this American democratic socialist story um, and, and overwhelmingly so in the trade union story that it's attached to. Um, so I just, uh, just to say that is just, it's just the, fu the fundamental thing for me to say. Um, and even uh, to, to speak to, the, to the, the organization itself with regard to this issue, um, look at a DSA pamphlet of some years ago by Cornell West called The Socialist Theory of Racism. Uh, and Cornell gets to the point where he talks about this very thing, um, that socialist organizations cannot, cannot plausibly I ask people of color to be part of their work uh, without privileging the struggles of people of color. Certainly not in this country. Uh, you just, that's just an ask you should not make. Um, and that was controversial when he, when he said it, when, when, he, when Cornell uh, wrote that piece. But fortunately, I mean, DSA kept that out you know, the, for, for its entire history. That's been a pamphlet. And of course, that CN, I think, prophetic fragment, no. Prophetic Fragments, Prophesy. Prophesy Deliverance. It's in the first book. Uh, that, that, that's a, one of the major pieces in Prophesy Deliverance. All right, now that I've dealt with what's really on my heart, uh, I'll, we'll go back to the his, history part of uh, your question um, because that's got two sides to it. Um, firstly, there's, there's, there's the trade union issue. Um, no, I think I'll flip it over. First, there's just the Marxism issue. Um, among you know the, the the Marxist strain that comes out of German social democracy and that does get replicated in in cons quite considerable parts of the Socialist Party uh, at its founding, including some people like uh, who knew their who knew their Karl Marx pretty well, and others like Eugene Debs, the great figure of that first generation, who can't read more than three pages of, of Karl Marx. Now, Marx is just not the kind of writer that Debs can, can will himself through. He's got to get his Marxism from Karl Kautsky, you know, a kind of a, kind of a catechism kind of version of Marxism. Uh, but even with that, uh, you know, Debs is a true believer, a true believer in what I call magical socialism. 
um, because he was a craft unionist earlier on. And now I'm getting back to what's going to be my, my other part of this answer. He was a craft unionist. And then later, he's an industrial unionist and then had his fling with that. And when he went from that to become a socialist, now he becomes a socialist as a pure, hardcore convert who believe, who's a true believer that socialism is the answer to everything. Um, and, and when you've got that in your head, uh, if that's what the real thing is, whether it's explicitly Marxist or not, then you've got a built-in reason to just say everything else is just secondary. Um, and, and all the organizations that deal with these issues, they're secondary too. And we don't deal with them. Or if we deal with them at all, it's on a kind of patronizing basis because they're lower and we're higher. We've got the answer and they're just mucking around. Um, and that does describe a fair amount of what happened in the, in the attempt to even have relationships with reform movements by a party that is signing on, you know, when you check the box, it's, you know, that I believe in the class struggle, that's presumably what, you, what you're signing on to, and that's certainly what a number of people thought. So there is a kind of built-in, from the, from the standpoint of, a, of, of what a great many people just thought it meant to actually be a socialist, believing in the real thing really was, was this, this, this one-factor argument. Um, that the class struggle is everything and all the other problems fold, in, fold under it. Um, and that's just a mighty barrier to, to this party ever, ever being what it needed to be. It's not like they didn't have this argument. They did have it out in some of their early conventions. And, and uh, George Woodby is one of the people who's pressing it. Uh, he's their greatest you know, organizer out in California. Uh, African-American, brilliant Christian socialist, uh, theorist, orator. Um, and he is sort of, you know, pressing the question. Um, but there are three factions of the so early Socialist Party on this issue, um, and one of them is terrible, uh, and the neo-abolitionist wing over here uh, is outnumbered. And then there's this, there's this mainstream that, just, that wants to say, of course, we have to have an anti-racist position formally. We're socialists. But let's talk about it as little as possible, uh, because we'll never have a single Southern chapter if we do talk about it, um, and we want to get somewhere. Um, and unfortunately, you know, that's, that's the faction that prevails, and I did just describe Eugene Debs. Um, so that's much of the built-in problem. Um, and then on top of it, something even worse, even with a larger, larger trajectory, what it meant for our country and the kind of socialism that we get, and, and so many other things, is just the fact that this country never had has never had a real labor movement. Yeah. I mean, it's never had anything like what labor movements are called everywhere in Europe and even in England. Um, and instead of anything like that, what we mostly have in this country is racist, sexist, nativist, craft unionism. You know, craft unionism is organizing just the workers in a single specific function, like railroad engineers, uh, into a single, you know, a federation. Um, and it's specialized, and it's ingrown, and people in a given part of the country or a given group, whoever, get a kind of dominance over it. They just protect it as their club. Um, and so craft unionism, I mean, unionism is supposed to unite workers. Um, but the kind of unionism we got in this country is just, it's divide and conquer. Uh, it really, it's dividing workers from each other on the basis of ethnicity and other factors, including class. 
uh, certainly race, certainly sex. Asians need not apply, right down the list uh, of how bad it is. Um, now, there were a few industrial unions in the, in the old AFL, the American Federation of Labor, and they're always, that's, that's where you find the socialists, right? Uh, most of the socialists in the old AFL are, are members of these few uh, industrial unions. Um, usually it's brewery workers or garment workers or, you know, people in other, um, the mine workers are, are by far the, you know, the most militant and, and, and most important um, in some ways of them all. Um, and, and, you know, they're upwards of, when they put it to a vote, the AFL, a couple of times, voted by, you know, this, the, the people saying, let's become socialist, 37, 38%, you know, which is not bad. It's not what you'd think. Um, but they, it's like their ceiling. They never break that. Um, and meanwhile, what does predominate, what becomes the AFL, it is, it is mostly a federation of these privileged racist craft unions. And that, the way that that, the way, what that affects in the kind of unionism that you get, and then what kind of socialism you can build on it, um, and then just what, even, what unionism just even is uh, in this country for decades beyond, um, is, um, is sad. Uh, and it is, it's, it's the biggest thing of all, uh, really, of what's, what's problematic um, in this situation. Um, there was a moment in the 19th, I mean, you know, we have one brief chance where it looks like maybe we get to rewrite this script. Because, uh, you know, we did build some industrial unions in the 1930s, and we do get more something that looks more like European unionism uh, that occurred in the 1930s. But, uh, you know, then came World War II, and then right on top of it, a Republican Congress that, that basically abolished everything that built the existing unions. They basically outlawed everything that had built the unions to begin with. Um, and so then you get a different political tra trajectory coming out of that because you just do what you can. Absolutely. Yeah. A, a part of why um, I asked that question and then am, am bridging to um, a second here, a uh, third rather, a, a part of what historically has been uh, posing the labor question separate from the, the Negro question as it was called back in the day reflects these kind of fissures where you don't uh, see a type of fusion of working for economic democracy and pushing for racial justice and pushing for gender equity in an integrated kind of way. And, and as you so powerfully mentioned, uh, one of those three wings of the Socialist Party you see in uh, a Du Bois and a Mary Ovington coming together to found the NAACP as, as Professor Dorian lays out so, so brilliantly uh, in, in the text. Uh, so want to, um, we talked a little bit about uh, some of the features between at least a certain wing of the Socialist Party and uh, the early AFL. I, I wonder if we can talk a bit more about what um, might make American distinctive in, in the title, American Democratic Socialism. Um, there seems to be a running thread throughout the, the text that you argue about uh, what liberty, what freedom, and those valences mean in an American context, uh, and even the tension between um, where markets fit in the context of plans versus sometimes it's said the other way around, uh, dem social democratic plans in the context of markets. So can you talk a little bit about what makes American democratic socialisms distinct from democratic socialisms in other contexts? Yeah. 
All right. Um, this is another very rich question. And I think I'll go for a couple of things that then lead me back basically where I left off uh, just now because you mentioned the NAACP and this will take me there. Um, firstly, there is in fact the individualism that just sets this country off. I mean, that's try to, try to build any kind of a socialist movement in this country, you're just dealing with age-old U.S. American individualism uh, on a scale of a type that you don't have to deal with anywhere else. Nobody else uh, in the world has quite uh, this thing that they're having to deal with, uh, with um, this, this just obsession uh, with our individuality and our individual space and, and the like, individual freedom, including all that's good in this, right? Uh, including that, you know, the, the, the strength, the, the, what's often the, the, the power that's within liberationist movements that have existed in this country is, is when they can tap into that sort of a U.S. American obsession with being an individual and not being crowded and being left free and having intellectual freedom. Anything that sort of goes with individual freedom is just sort of so quintessentially U.S. American that it, it, can, be, it can be the strength of a, of a left movement that, you know, where that's the issue. Uh, certain issues do, in fact, go right down that lane. Um, and, um, and so, of course, this is, this is many-sided. Um, I think of a figure like Henry Ward Beecher, by far just a spectacularly famous person. I mean, just so famous, just on a scale, just almost impossible uh, to grasp. Henry Ward Beecher, uh, pastor of Plymouth Church, uh, Plymouth Church in uh, Brooklyn, uh, editor of the Independent Magazine, famous abolitionist uh, and feminist, way ahead of his time. Uh, as, a, as a feminist, uh, as uh, 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 goes out, raises money at Plymouth Church. They're buying Sharps rifles to give to the anti-slavery struggle in Kansas. I mean, imagine that. Um, this is this is someone who is who is spectacularly famous, and establishes that there's certainly such a thing as progressive Christianity. Because look at him. I mean, it's just undeniable that, you know, there, there is such a thing. And it's, he's creating space for it. And Beecher died, lived until the mid-1880s. And yet even someone like that, someone who checks virtually every box that you can imagine for what progressive means in the 1860s, he's dead against unions. Against unions. You know, union, that's the herd mentality. That's the group, right? He's a pure... He's, he's an individual, not just on US, typical U.S. American grounds, but of course he's a romantic. Um, and there's a lot of romanticism in left movements of this time as well. So you get one kind of individualism just sort of doubling down on the other. Um, and that, a lot of that um, is, in, is just in our body politic. And as I say, when you can get this working for you, uh, well, you know, you're well advised to try it. That, that even speaks to so much of why Eugene Debs was such a galvanizing figure. Because uh, there's just no getting around it. This guy is, is quintessential, not just U.S. American, Midwest U.S. American. Um, he, he's, it, the, the sayings, the, the way he carries himself, the mannerisms, the, the morals, the mores, um, the, the way he can light up a crowd... Uh, it just all go. They, the workers loved him, and they, he, they loved him back. Um, I did say in the book, uh, I quoted Deb saying, there's no such thing as an unorganized socialist. It's a sentiment I believe in, right? And, and he did too. But of course, Debs is an example of someone who's not too organized. 
uh, he, 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 he wouldn't even go to conventions. Uh, he, couldn't, he just couldn't bear conventions. He is a quintessential U.S. American individualist, uh, and a romantic figure uh, who's out there speaking in the fields and bringing people in. Um, and all of that individualism um, is indeed, I mean, what, what do you do with it? Uh, it's certainly there. It's something you have to deal with. The, uh, the, the person who, who got crowds like nobody else in the, on the Christian socialist side of things in the 1880s and 1890s was George, George Heron. Here again, just quintessential evangelical preacher. Uh, I mean, it's just, it's, it's democratic socialism as, as evangelical revivalism. Um, all the tropes, they're there. They're just kind of translated um, into socialist uh, analysis and language. Um, and this sort of altar call of it, the, the, that sort of quintessential American individualism of calling out the corruption of the nation uh, and, rec and returning to the true faith and all of it. Uh, you know, Heron just packed them in. Um, and, you know, without a word of, uh, of uh, regret or apology for being a romantic individualist, he very much was one. So that, yeah, that's certainly, all of that is in the U.S. American business. The, another thing that's just terribly important yeah. is the, the ethnic diversity. I mean, this country is just ethnically diverse like, like no nation yeah. on the planet. So that as soon as the Socialist Party exists in this country, founded in 1901, it already exceeds the cultural diversity of the entire Socialist International. Um, all these, and all these people who had come from places in Europe to the United States to become socialists, some of whom were socialists before they got here, they're all coming from places where ethnic nationalism is defining. And now they're coming to a place where they're living with all kinds of other people around them, uh, most of them. Uh, and so that is, it's, it's part of the glory of this tradition. I think the U.S. American tradition of democratic socialism has the richest cultural history of any socialist tradition on earth. Um, and I think, it's I think its intellectual and political tradition is, you know, it's pretty good too. It's, it's, you know, it's complex and quite wonderful in many ways. But culturally, there's just nothing else like it. Um, and so you gotta speak to that too. I mean, that's, that's a huge reality, including the downside of it, which I just referred to a while ago, because since, you know, all that ethnicity, that just made, them, made, made the union movement ripe for divide and conquer, uh, which is what happened. Um, all right, I want to head now to where you were uh, in the first part of that question because, uh, yes, the, um, the way this comes through and trying to build what became the NAACP. Uh, you know, the NAACP founded, and well, I mean, the first, the first meeting was in 1909. Um, it's, it's after so many things have already failed. I mean, you had an abolitionist convention movement that went on through Reconstruction, but that's just Frederick Douglass and people like that giving speeches. And then they're realizing, no, we, we've got to build protest organizations. I mean, the, the 14th and 15th Amendments are just getting killed. Uh, and now we've got this, this, this mania of lynching starting up uh, and a kind of racist white nationalist discourse that's just now so foul, it's just, just, just unspeakable. Um, and we've got, to, we've got to build protest organizations against this because it's just getting worse and worse all the time. So, you know, mid-1880s, uh, Tom Fortune tries to found the, the uh, Afro-American League. Um, and that fails because that's just a handful of people in the black bourgeoisie. Um, and from there, he tried to found the Afro-American League. Um, no, the Afro-American Council. 
um, that group is actually getting somewhere, getting some success, getting some. It becomes successful enough that Booker T. Washington has to take it over um, because, you know, he's got to colonize it, which he did. Um, there were white versions of it, the Constitution League, led by John Milholland, and Albion Torgay had an organization um, that he tried but uh, flopped. The Niagara Movement, that, this is Du Bois saying, well, now I'm going to have to try it. Uh, the Niagara Movement is Du Bois trying to build a protest organization um, that does what, what the NACP ended up doing, right? Uh, and Du Bois, you read the, uh, you know, it really only lasted for like three and a half years, but um, it's, I, and he had a different financial secretary every year, and you read the lit, the, the, these letters that pass between them, oh my God, it's just the saddest stuff. It's just, you just feel it, just the grinding misery of it, of just trying to keep this thing going. Uh, and just can't find the money, the wherewithal, can't get public, can't even get your meetings publicized, uh, nothing. And it's just, it just grinds him down and exhausts him. And so, and so by 1909, W.B. Du Bois is nowhere. I mean, he has failed, um, and he feels his failure. Um, and I hear now, the drama building. What's that? I, was, I hear the drama building. Give, give us the story. Yes, and so now, yeah. So now, now, if these white liberals with some deep pockets are willing to build this thing, hell yes. It's time to cut a deal with the white liberals and, have, and especially the white socialists because there's no NACP without socialists. It's actually socialists who made it what it is, who got it, be, became what it, what it needed to be. If it had just been Du Bois holding off white liberals, the NACP would not, have, would not have been what it was because those white liberals also had black middle-class dentists and physicians and lawyers who they're not on for Du Bois' understanding of the NACP either. The idea that the NACP should be a, a global wedge uh, in a liberationist struggle for all people of color, that is not what they signed on for. That sounds like a race-conscious version of socialism, which in fact it is. Right? That's Du Bois' idea what the NACP should be. And he did get his way, but he only got his way because of Mary White Ovington and William English Walling uh, and Russell and a few other, a handful of socialists who've got his back, who always support him, who say to the white liberals who've got the power on the board, he is our star, he is the one with a vision, he is Crisis Magazine is a spectacular success, and we have, we have to support him. We have to see this through. And as a clincher argument, they, they do use it, they say. And if you don't, it's just going to look like you just can't, you just can't deal with a, with a black star of your organization. Um, and that was, all of that was just barely enough um, for the NACP to become what it needed to be, what in fact it was. Um, and I think the NACP has, has just a fantastic history, maybe the greatest of any, history, of any organization um, in this country, even though it went, you know, very establishment after a while. Uh, went back when it mattered. It's just, it's just carrying the entire civil rights movement. And it really doesn't happen without the socialists in the room. <clears throat> so um, I hope folks are getting their questions ready because we are about to transition into a question uh, and answer moment. Uh, I think there have been distributed uh, some cards, if I'm not mistaken, um, but if they're not uh, cards, uh, we can all hear each other and uh, we can project. Uh, so I'm going to raise one more question and then uh, we'll turn it over to uh, free-flowing uh, de deliberation. Uh, so. 
want to end um, this part of the, the conversation here. And I'm wondering how, because um, I, I think you, you deal with it particularly uh, towards the, um, the tail end of the book, but I think it's present all throughout as you deal with Jim Crow and lynching and, and so forth. Um, but how does American democratic socialism deal with um, perhaps uh, some of the ambivalence in the country about what the public sector can do? Uh, because on the one end, you need the public sector to get something like a Green New Deal, a jobs guarantee, um, any reparation scheme worth the name. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, there's suspicion about the public sector, right, in terms of deportations, mass incarceration, police violence, and all the rest. And so what does it look like in this moment for American democratic socialism to operationalize as opposed to just merely, you know, um, d discussing it, and I, I, there's there's so many threads of it, I, I think, in the book. So I'm wondering, can you talk about operationalizing a, a theory of the state that recognizes its contradictions? Yes, thank you, Andrew. Uh, well, <clears throat> uh, this is another rich question, and there's too much in it um, to get my arms around. Um, I think the first part, I'll just say that's building what I already said, um, it is the case since individualism runs so deeply in the political culture of this country anyway, um, that there is something of a kind of a default option here, almost no matter your politics. That, that is to say, with regard to conservative or radical or whatever, uh, you can be some kind of very individualist uh, figure in this country that's almost your default just by virtue of being an American and just feeling like, yes, you've inherited this whole legacy of, you know, off my back and the state is bad and so on, um, that, um, that it is a kind of, you can find a safe space, a way of agreeing with relatives who don't agree with any other parts of your politics, you might bond over individualism. Uh, so that, that is part of this, um, which I just sort of recognize for what it is. Um, and to see it's, it's, you know, different blades, different sides to it. Uh, but I think we're just, we're always dealing with this. And I want to even sort of speak to the, the more political, even kind of now sort of part of this, uh, having to do with anarchism. Um, because there indeed, there is a, there's a great revival of anarchism uh, going on um, right now. Um, and, you know, socialism and anarchism are twins. I mean, they are products of the same history. They are coming out of the same movements, the same people. Sometimes they are the same people uh, coming out of the 1820s and 30s. And, and it's not coincidental that they both, both socialists and anarchists, have it virtually in their DNA, this, this dream, this aspiration of whenever the real revolution occurs, once we get what needs to happen, then we won't need a state, right? The state will wither away. Or if you're an anarchist of a certain generation or type, well, first we have to smash the state, right? Let's not get tied up with all these things socialists want to talk about. The issue is smashing the state. Uh, well, socialists can't say that. I think, you, you know, that, that is where the parting of the ways occurred. This is the issue that destroyed the First International. This is Marx versus Bakunin in the First International. Um, and it finally did, it did destroy them. Because while you can always make an argument for why anarchists and socialists be, should be able to work together, and certainly they can work together on a lot of issues, but in the same organization, no, they're going to end up coming at a loggerheads. 
um, because there is, I think just within anarchism, this, you know, this predisposition to say that the, the, the first order of business is always just to smash the state, to get rid of it, to just be apart from it, that the state is the problem. Um, and, and socialists are always going to qualify that kind of analysis, even when you share so much of the analysis of about what the capitalist state does under capitalism all the time, even when you grant, you know, uh, from a Marxist standpoint, there's just no such thing as a socialist state. Uh, there, you know, Marx does have this sort of view that once the proletariat revolution occurs, we just won't need a state because the Marx, the Marxist idea of what a state is, a state just exists to shore up, you know, privilege and and, um, and capitalism, the privileges of the bourgeoisie. Uh, that, that's what that's what the state is, uh, and that, and it's sort of it's a doctrine uh, within Marxism. Um, so we have all these points of connection, and yet socialists are people saying, no, we we've, we've got to worry about. You know, the people living right around us here who are, who are one social security check away from, from, from starving, uh, from not having any heat on tonight, uh, from not being able to live uh, this month. I mean, uh, it, socialists created all these programs um, that, that, uh, and, and fought for them, um, and, and, and which were always called socialism when they were put in, because in fact they were. Uh, social Security is socialist, and, and, and universal, any kind of health care so, is socialist, much less universal health care, and go right down the list. Uh, so indeed, uh, this is the difference uh, between what became the Second International and the first, and what was the first one. Because when they started the Second International in 1889, they just said, we just have to leave. We just have to keep out the anarchists, you know. Even if even if we love them, uh, and we work with them on certain things, um, you know, we've got to have an organization where we're not having that fight all the time. We we can get on with what is our agenda, our business, and that does mean yes, working in the public sector in order to provide for people, even for people who aren't going to appreciate it, um, but to just just raise the the floor on on, on the decency. Um, issue and it indeed it includes all those things that you know you rattle off as, as well you know I mean you there, there's no 14th or 15th amendment without a government you know uh, and there's no there's no getting them back without a government that gets its arms around the issue that's why that's why this whole black social gospel tradition I track in these three b, three big books there's just no there's just no hint of anarchism in any of them you know because that's just not what what I mean, what's, what's in your face, you know? How do we relieve just the pressure of a racist society that's, that, is, that is holding my life in threat? You need some help with that. Um, and I think, you know, socialists are, are, are keen to sort of use the power of the state for that, for that purpose. Um, and in some points of socialist history, too much. I, I do want to put this in out there. There's only been one generation of the whole history of socialism where, where, you know, nationalize all the means of production and, and state socialism was, was the dominant thing, that that's what you think when you hear the word and that that's basically what it means. And that's between the two world wars. And there is a reason, you know, why, why you know, that made sense. I mean, they, it, a lot of places, the only solution to the coal mine issue, issue was just nationalize them. Um, and then you sort of build on that and trying to get your arms around other problems. And so, there, and so the idea of socialism as, as the state just taking over everything, which in England is called Fabian socialism, because that's all Fabian socialism is. Just, you know, yes, indeed. Uh, we're just going to have the state socialize everything. But it's only really one generation 
where that's where socialism was. Socialism, before all that, and I think since, um, is mostly about grassroots from the bottom up. Um, and it's economic democracy. It's not that we're, we have, we're kind of a, have a predisposition against top-down. We don't like too much coming from top-down. We recognize that certain things are going to have to happen top-down. You can't get your arms around certain kinds of issues uh, without a certain amount of top-down. But, uh, but it's got to be a mix and match, and most of it from bottom up. Yeah, be beautiful. Um, let's move into some questions. Um, the, 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 the water is still warm and folks want to wade in the water with their questions. Uh, so uh, I'm going to start giving them to you and I, I'm sure you can take it as, as good as I, I, I give it. Um, how do you briefly respond to people who ask you, what is DSA all about? Um, well, even here, it would depend on uh, what I'm working with. I mean, what context I'm in how much background we've sort of got here, what sort of a crowd um, you know it is. Uh, so then you just start in um, different places. I would say the short answer, assuming some, some understanding here about what, what this might mean, um, there's just no question whatsoever what DSA was about when it was founded, what the, what the idea of it was. This was the attempt of a bunch of us to finally heal the rift between the old left and the new left um, and to bring the energies of, of the old left. We still had folks from the 1930s around at that time and then generations after and then people who were, who were radical leftists in the 1930s and many of them just burned out by just the sheer raucous turmoil uh, of the 1960s and people burned out from it. Uh, and, and still left with the bitter divides that did exist between the older generation of leftists who are basically economistic and a lot of them Marxists or social democratic um, and a lot of people from the younger, uh, the 60s crowd that was not for any of that uh, and for wanting to reinvent the left um, more in their own image um, uh, and then built this fabulous organization that just utterly self-destructed in 18 months. I'm talking now about SDS. Uh, and then you got the, all the energy, the kind of leftover, you know, what's left over from all of that, plus the breakup of the Socialist Party itself, because the Socialist Party broke up in 1972, 1973. Um, although there the issue was democratic socialism versus a more conservative form that ended up becoming neoconservatism. So DSA was, I mean, we already had, we already had the Democratic Socialist Organizing Committee. That's, that's Michael Harrington uh, organizing the progressive elements from the old Socialist Party. And we already had NAM, the New American Movement. And that's new left people from the 1960s, many of them just deeply burned, uh, but now wanting to, to rebuild. And all of those people in NAM, they were all socialist feminists, every one of them. In fact, NAM had as it's in its just its core, NAM has a has a verbalized sort of commitment to a feminist socialism that is just that is just not even not to be negotiated. Uh, it's a product of that of the new left um, in that respect, much more than was the case with DSOC. Um, but D DSA was these two wings, these two movements within democratic socialism um, coming together. I think I'll say one other thing about NAM. NAM, even though it was quite small, the Gramsci revival, much of it comes through NAM. 
People, the whole, this whole movement of people reading Gramsci and talking about organic intellectualism and giving culture, a, a privileging culture, just saying, we just keep getting killed in the culture wars all the time because we don't believe in it. Uh, well, we better believe in it because ordinary people live you know, out, of, out of the culture that they're in. Um, and, and that that's what hegemony is. It's, it's capitalism just re reproducing itself through the, through the ordinary culture uh, the ordinary people live in because capitalism has reproduced itself in all the cultural forms. It's, it's really, um, it was the NAM wing uh, that brought that into DSA much more than DSOC. DSOC is still more to typically old style out of its social democratic and Marxist. So I would say DSA from the beginning has been um, this, um, this, kind of, this bringing together of the best parts of, the, of a whole of difference or a democratic socialist movements uh, of the past um, in a way that could be, as you know, we always called it a multi-tendency organization. We were never an organization that had a line. Uh, that had, you know, what you just had to be uh, in order to be uh, in it there. Mike gave this talk for years in which he'd, he'd rattle off, you know, all the, all the caucuses uh, in DSA and say, well, you know, you couldn't possibly be all of them because some of them contradict each other. He says, but they're all in DSA um, and that's DSA. It's all those caucuses and more um, that we have in it. Um, <clears throat> Beautiful. Um, and that bridging function still feels very, very relevant today when you have folks wondering where's a, where might a political home be for folks who are part of a movement for black lives, folks who are part of an Occupy, folks who are part of a Fight for 15. And you, you, you laid that out, I think, pretty Oh, can I add just this then? Please, that, please. That's such a perfect lead into this. I always felt that the best argument for DSA is what Cornell West always says about it. You know, when, and Corn, it, usually when Cornell will get pressed on it, you know, why are you in DSA? Right, because uh, he's been a, he was a vice chair forever, and uh, he he came on board when we when we founded DSA. He was not in DSOC, but he was he in DSA. He'd always say, "I've got to be in some organization that's for everything that I'm for." Right? There's got to be some, even if it's weak in some ways. Even a, no, I've got to be in something that where everything that I'm about it it is. I know I'm among my people there. Uh, that I'm working on, 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 on all these different things. I've always felt that's the best argument uh, for DSA. Uh, for a long time, I worried that, you know, just, there just weren't enough of us. Uh, but now there are a whole lot more of us. I mean, DSA is up to 100,000 people now <clears throat> and growing. <clears throat> Absolutely. Uh, so here, here, here's the next question. Uh, you mentioned earlier that uh, Booker T. Washington uh, colonized a, a movement. Uh, words have power. Uh, why did she use the word colonize? I think this is when you were talking about organizational precursors to the NAACP. Yeah. Well, it is a term that now, I mean, it has a purchase that we sort of get, you know, what that is. Uh, and certainly he is coming into something from without uh, and just presuming his right to take it over and, ha and, and make it something that it wasn't previously because it just isn't what he wants. It has actually become a quite successful vehicle of protest activism, which Booker T. is, is against. Um, and so, oh, so when he came in, he came in the way, the way center, settler colonialists do, as though they have a, they've, got a, they've got a privileged worldview that's just truer, it's better, it's superior to the one that exists uh, here. 
Um, and he did take for granted that his sort of right um, to do this. The moment he joined, that's when Ida Wells Barnett left. She says, she says the writing was on the wall because Booker T. Washington was just colossally powerful. I mean, he was just had an enormous uh, regard, and much of it deserved. This is I make I make Union students squirm sometimes, and I make them see why it is that Bush you, Booker you, T. You, you got him off the witness stand in New Abolition. Is I, I, a I, colossal figure. There are reasons why Booker T. is so great and was revered in this country for decades. But of course, there there's also the bad bad side of Booker T. And I that's we're naming it right here, and that's why. You know, it's all needed to go. <clears throat> yes. So here, here's the next one. And, and by the way, uh, these questions are incisive and, and incredibly generative. So just uh, give, give yourselves a, a hand for, for these. Um, the U.S. is becoming more of a multi-faith country. What influence will this have on U.S. politics? Uh, especially when at the, uh, and I'm paraphrasing a bit here, at the same time when there is the decline of religion. Ah. Uh. I'm not sure about the, the, um, the trajectory of interfaith organizing and activism upon the larger body politic that includes this whole other half of the country that's just has all this fear and loathing about being replaced. I mean, what, what possible impact the conversations that we have a union every day about just what interfaith activism is and just what it means to be in interfaith conversations and what it means to, 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 um, to create, to develop new forms of comparative theology and the like. I mean, we have, we have a discourse that's going on that's multi-perspectival and that's new and that has, every, that's, has everything to do with this question. Um, yeah, but how much of it, what are we doing in any of that that is going to, down the road, have an impact on what all, we're also sort of fighting off all the time uh, over here. Of course I have a hope about that. Um, that is an extension of what I've always hoped, you know, and it's part of the reason why I'm in the church, um, is that I do think uh, that, that being, uh, being in a religious community is a way of being involved with folks that aren't, who don't just look like you and think like you, uh, and um, that where there's some other basis of what brought them all together, um, that now, you know, there's a sort of discourse about what's, what is good and beautiful and what, um, how, how we should treat each other um, that, of course, I always have hope can kind of seep into uh, other parts of the world. I, I wrote a book on evangelical theology. I've spoken in many uh, very conservative evangelical uh, seminaries and um, and uh, churches. Uh, I've I've spent much of my radio time speaking on right wing radio stations, uh, where I just you know take you know take whatever comes at me. I, and what I always think when I'm when I'm doing that work is just picturing somebody who's 15 years old in their audience, 16 years old, who's just never heard anything except right wing Christianity. Um, and I'm just trying to model something uh, there for those people. I'm not trying to convince my host here that I'm right. I know that's hopeless. Um, but what, what can get to who else is in their audience? 
And of course, there's been tremendous movement. I mean, there, there's a whole subfield now that just discovered, that just studies exangelicals, or what we were calling the emergent movement for a while, or the like. I mean, evangelicalism just by itself, including black evangelicalism, is just, you know, wildly various and, and you know, complex. So there are, you know, there are real things to sort of hope for as to how any of us who've got access to religious communities and are involved in them, you know, can have an, in, can have an impact beyond just whatever involvement we have, say, in DSA. Um, and so that's always my hope, sort of along this line. Um, and I do think that, um, that, you know, interfaith activism does do that kind of work, usually on a very tactile neighborhood street level. Um, you know, one of, my, one of my former doctoral students, Chloe Breyer, is the director of the Interfaith uh, Center uh, at, uh, in uh, 475 Riverside, and this is just what she does all the time. Uh, it's just sort of answering the call to where faiths are coming into collision or where they're trying to come into a conversation. Um, and it's usually at this, the level of where, where it really is just something, it's not something high-flying, it's right, how do, how do we work together, which starts with even just kind of knowing each other. Um, I, I, I think this is, this is our future, yeah. Absolutely. We'll just add on to that two quick things. One, um, Auburn Seminary does a lot of this work. Um, Reverend Dr. Emma Jordan Simpson now assumed the leadership post there, and they talk uh, powerfully and movingly about building a multi-faith movement for justice. And then at the collegiate level, I think of the work of someone like uh, an Ibu Patel, uh, who leads the Interfaith Youth Corps, which is really trying to have this be a part of um, not just service learning, but advocacy and a part of the kind of academic experience folks get as well. Uh, so here, here's the next question. This one um, is going to tug at, at the heartstrings, I think, a bit. Uh, who is a religious socialist you admire and wish was more understood in contemporary U.S. life? Um, well, um, some of you know. I mean, uh, um, I've mentioned him a couple times already today. I mean, Cornell is just about the dearest friend I have. Uh, my, my career is going to end well because now I've got him around again. And it's just, it does such good for my heart, uh, just, um, just to be around him. Um, so, of course, it's Cornell. Um, the, um, and and it, it's been so for more than just that, those kind of reasons, because, of course, most of the time he hasn't been proximate to me in my career. But I've, all these years I've been teaching, I, I have taught something of Cornell's every single year uh, that I've been teaching. So he's sort of in my head, always sort of teaching um, these uh, works. Um, and one of the things I just sort of l l love about Cornell is, uh, besides just being almost superhumanly magnanimous uh, and generous and kind um, and brilliant, uh, is that he, um, he also uh, has this sort of tendency to, 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 to draw upon and be strengthened by, you know, the saints of the past, you know. Uh, I've heard him just say, you know, that uh, you know, whatever context he's in, just know he's, you know, I got to be with Jesus uh, and sojourner truth, right? That's how he'll sort of talk about it. I'm a sort of Jesus-centered blues man, you know, that's, that's sort of my sensibility. And sort of having a kind of a sense of the, the saints from the past that, you know, who are sort of, who've been lights uh, to his own path. Um, you can't know him long or, or hear from him in almost any context where, where that doesn't come through, uh, you know, where he's not drawing on Sojourner Truth and Du Bois and Dorothy Day and, and Rabbi Heschel and, you know, there are those, those, those figures 
those, there's those certain figures of that sort that um, are the ones that, that have just always been in his wheelhouse. If you read him in sequence, all his books, well, some people come and then they go. They kind of, you know, he's, he's on with them for a while and then not so much. But boy, there's certain people uh, who've, um, who've sort of, I think, been the figures who helped him to, to uh, keep, keep explaining to himself what kind of religious socialist he is. Um, who have been uh, second nature important to him. Um, I'll go one more, just, just in order to say somebody that probably no one has heard of, uh, but just in, within my own religious tradition. I mean, I ended up becoming an Episcopal priest, uh, mostly because I was 29 years old and I'm overdue to finally join something, because uh, I was a solidarity organizer all through my 20s and 30s. And, um, didn't even become an academic till I was 35. But I finally joined the church when I was 29. Um, and my wife was a Presbyterian pastor. This was before she had her years of fighting cancer. And, um, and so I, when I finally was ready to join a church, she said, oh, I think that's a swell idea. Just don't join my church. Uh, so I've got to join something other than the Presbyterian church. And I was reading a lot of William Temple at the time. Uh, and that's the only reason I'm an Episcopal priest, uh, is that here's someone who's a theorist of economic democracy, uh, who is, is living in the, in the heart of the beast of the empire uh, and critical of empire and willing to, you know, make people uncomfortable. He's to the manner born. He's like, he's like been born on the other side of the moon from someone like me, a poor kid from the middle of Michigan. Um, and yet that, his privilege just wasn't a barrier between us at all. I don't feel that way just because of what he cares about. And he's also, you know, an expert on Hegel, so he's, you know, he's got that going for him as well. So I end up becoming, I mean, it's just when I joined the Episcopal Church, I know nothing about the Episcopal Church except everything I've read in William Temple and, and a few people like him. Um, but, you know, he is someone who, you know, he's been one of those lights um, for me. Beautiful. Beautiful. Uh, so a couple of more questions and then we're, we're going to, um, to wrap up. So th these may be... Um, uh, lightning round uh, questions. I, I want to be sensitive to, 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 to the time. Um, so I'm going to have to do some threading here. Um, could you say a bit more about the early Delonis, um, Delionis, rather, uh, Socialist Labor Party? Um, and in talking about that, uh, I think there is a request to hear some maybe contextualizing around class reductionism um, not necessarily being always the proximate cause for U.S. labor power failure. Um, well, thank you. This, this is a wonderful question. And um, uh, the reference here is to the, uh, the Socialist Labor Party. Um, and um, it is founded by the successors of these 48ers, people who came out of Germany, uh, who had to flee Germany in, in 1848 because, you know, they've just had liberal bourgeois revolutions uh, in Europe, and then they were all overthrown, and now a lot of the people who are in them, some of them had their prison time first, but then they, they get out of Europe, and they come to this country. And we're talking, these are some of the founders of the Republican Party, Joseph Wiedemeyer and Karl Schutz and people like that. Uh, are this, this generation of 48ers, some of whom knew Karl Marx personally. Um, so they're already, they're check every box socialists and usually Marxists, who a lot of them really know their Marxism. 
uh, when they came to this country. And so they are organizing just, you know, what, what they're used to. I mean, that's, this country doesn't have any self-named socialist movement. Well, that's just pitiful. You know, we, we, need, we need to get one up, especially in New York City and Chicago and Milwaukee and a few places like that. And so they did. Um, and uh, what comes of this whole story that I've, I've already gone too far back to start with, but um, what comes from it is, um, is this uh, great figure, Daniel de Leon, um, who uh, was a, a very complex um, figure, but very domineering, very powerful, a, a, uh, a professor. Um, uh, here's a cultural referent, you know, just the fact that these are mostly Germans uh, here, they have a regard for professors that's just, you know, just doesn't exist in this country, but where they're coming from, the professor is someone kind of set on high, and so they've got a little bit too much regard uh, for him. He ends up joining the Socialist Labor Party in 1886, practically virtually takes it over, uh, runs right to the top, and de Leon is a brilliant, um, domineering, powerful, sexist, um, uh, kind of Marxist, um, who had his way both for better and for worse in the Socialist Party. Uh, part of the upshot of when I say for worse is that when the Socialist Party did form then in 1901, and a lot of these are one whole flank of it, one side of it that ended up forming was these are refugees from the Socialist Labor Party. And they were so traumatized by having had to live under the lash, the trauma, the being, you know, domineered by this brilliant, problematic figure, that they then committed the Socialist Party to a federal structure that has no federal structure at all. It's all just every state was, the, it was a kind of federalism uh, where every state was the highest authority, and so you had just all these different Socialist Parties, really. Uh, in this country, and all of that was just a, just a reaction to the trauma they had um, being under de Leon. Uh, and de Leon um, felt that the one thing we don't, the socialist movement really doesn't have, is a strategy to take power. Um, and so he he bores from within. Um, and so much of the early trouble that a lot of these socialists had within the AFL was that de Leon alienated so many of the AFL unionists that you're trying to win over to socialism that then it becomes impossible to win them over because their exposure to it has been this kind of Machiavellian uh, you know character um, who's trying to uh, manipulate them and tell them what to think um, and so on uh, but as I, I don't want to underestimate that this is a powerful figure uh, in socialist history uh, who had not a little to do with, with just what, what socialism became and who was himself on the platform you know, when they, when they built the IWW, too. I mean, there he was. Now, of course, he had problems with them and, then, and them with him as well. Because he always, he was, just, he was never in anything that he just didn't try to, t try to take over. Um, I, what I want to say, though, is that I, I have such enormous respect, even for that. And that's a version of it that's the one, the kind of version I have the most trouble with, you know. But even there, I have just enormous respect uh, for these first couple generations of American Marxists uh, for whom, yes, holding on to a doctrine about the class struggle, explaining everything that's in the New York Tribune and the New York Times today, um, is, 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 their, is their worldview. It's how they make sense of the world and find their place in the world and then, and then join with people 
for whom they now are inspired to be part of something and to, you know, I mean, in, in their everyday lives, they're nobody and just denigrated in this society. And yet now as part of this movement um, that is named the class struggle, something is indeed mostly right, mostly exactly uh, what is occurring, um, that um, uh, I'm, I'm grateful for this, for, for this question because... Um, because, yes, this is mostly what socialism has been through its history. A strong focus, sometimes way too often an exclusive focus on, on class and the collapse of capitalism and on a kind of analysis of capitalism and, and so that everything is, is, is for that. And, and, and so, yes, we've, we've learned what is wrong in that. Um, but it can, it, it can go too far, and we, we can end up losing what it is that's distinctive to a socialist perspective, because indeed, socialism is always sort of paying attention to who's got power, uh, who's got control of this enterprise, how is economic power determining what kind of politics we have, what do we, what we even think the options are. Um, and there is no issue that we have anywhere injustice politics of any kind that doesn't have some fundamental economic undergirding that has to be dealt with. If that's not the case, it's actually not worth bearing the burden of the word socialist. Yeah. Um, but nothing quite names it like socialist does. Um, even, if, even if in some context, some of us you know, use the language of economic democracy for all it's worth, uh, just to sort of get a wedge in the door. Um, it's it's indeed it's that it's that it's that socialism as a critique of what capitalism is doing to us. Um, that's that's the heart. That is heart and soul. That's fine. That's fine. Uh, so this is the uh, uh, final question, uh, and in many ways it, it brings us in a uh, North American context. So in, in some respects, we're, we're right where uh, we started. Um, the U.S. Uh, and Canada, I'm uh, reading the question now, are two countries where the takeover of the left by social democratic parties never happened and liberal parties remain dominant. But in Canada, a viable social democratic alternative did emerge. You talk about, a bit, about this a bit with uh, Thomas, uh, which has proved durable and has sometimes held power. So the question is, why has even this level of success, uh, which Canada had, proved elusive for the American socialist movement. How are the U.S. and Canada different? Um, yes, I mean, it's, uh, this isn't, I don't understand well enough to really um, be able to speak to this, even though I've, I have been thinking about it, and I've spoken a lot in Canada, and I've tried to get, I've tried to, um, find a better answer to this uh, question than I, than I ever have. I, this is something I still don't understand uh, well enough um, because uh, it's some of the same political variables are in fact there. Um, and, uh, and you do, I mean certainly one of the answers is that there is a stronger unionism. Uh, in Canada. You're not, you don't, you've got a much stronger ethos of unionism. You're not, you're not having to overcome this enormous uh, barrier, cultural barrier of an inbred individualism that's just so proud of itself for being individualistic. Um, this, what, what religious socialism you have in Canada, which is a substantial story, um, is 
um, is more, much more like British socialism, that is British Christian socialism than, than what is the case here, where there's just an assumption uh, that of course uh, Christian socialists should be involved in, you know, in, in, in Commonwealth Party politics, in the, in, uh, in the, uh, in the New Democratic Party or you know, whatever it is sort of in that, in that generation um, there. Um, so um, I think the reason that I, I, I struggle with this question is that I, I've always sort of recognized certain things in the Canadian experience that I just find so congenial um, that I, I do have some envy there and then I worry about my own kind of tendency to romanticize those factors. Um, and yet there is a, there's a, there's just a much strong, it, as close as we are to the Canadians physically, there's a much stronger cultural politics and even politics, politics connection between Canada and what is the, the British tradition of socialism than, than what we can talk about. Uh, here, I mean, this the in some cases it's the very same organizations um, that exist and are kind of looking uh, there, and the way this sort of religion can 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 be can be involved in in common good politics is just is just taken for granted. Uh, is just not this terrible barrier that it is in this country. Where we're always always having to defend yourself even for being involved um, in this kind of um, work. So. Um, I think there's more to this um, than, I, than I've ever been able to get my arms around. Uh, and and I'll, this is the last thing I'll just say about this. And the reason I know that must be the case is I don't understand how they moved so fast when they did. I mean, we're, this, this is a story that goes back to 1829 in the United States. And you got parties in the 1970s, and then a, this fabulous socialist party in 1901, and then by 1919, it's already just been blown apart. And the Canadians haven't even started yet. I mean, the Canadians don't really get rolling until the 1920s, um, and, that, and yet once they do, uh, they just sail past uh, what was you know the Thomas socialists at that time. And Thomas, I've you know I've read some of his correspondence with Canadians of that time, and he's. You know, he's kind of bewildered. He's also, you know, it's a little shaming uh, just to see uh, how, how it is in Canadian political culture, the, the kind of thing that was requisite. I mean, everything that was Norman Thomas socialism, which we never did talk about at all tonight, but everything that was Norman Thomas socialism, is, that's just the new Democratic Party in Canada. Um, and there, you got people getting elected on it. Uh, you're not living this kind of lonely life of just, you know, speaking to small crowds and, and getting humiliated every four years the way Thomas did. Um, and, uh, and, and I think, and the, the, the most concrete thing I can just say about that is it's, it's more like Britain than, it, it, um, than like the United States. Of course, also, you know, with some of the, some of the interest stuff that you have in, in, in Britain as well, because... That's been now the great the great tragedy in the Labour Party in England is that is that you know the Scottish socialists were holding it up for so long and now they've gone nationalist and that that that's just fallen right out of the bottom of what was the Labour Party and so now we've lost so much of what were Labour Party seats for decades yeah. um, that's just uh, that's just hurting and having to start all over again in England. Absolutely. Uh, well, can we put our hands again and give uh, Professor Dorian a, a big round of applause? Uh, really appreciate the incredible um, generosity that you use to, to uh, move through these questions and share about your book.
This has been an episode of Heart of a Heartless World, a podcast produced by the Religious Socialism Working Group of the Democratic Socialists of America. This episode was produced by Jeremy McMahon with intro music by Party Dark. You can follow Religious Socialism on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and visit our website at religiousSocialism.org.